chapter 16. We're going to begin reading in verse 6. Today is the last time I'm going to preach in Mark's Gospel. It's been over a year. Um, so it has been quite the journey. And of course, this last year has felt like three years, honestly, hasn't it? Um, so it's been like three years in our minds that we've been in Mark's Gospel. I know some of you are probably ready to move on to something else, but what a journey it's been. And uh, we're skipping over the passage on the resurrection for today, not because the resurrection isn't important, but uh, Pastor Tyson from our assistant, our assistant pastor in our channel location will be here next week, and uh, I'll be here as well, but he'll be bringing the word to us. And, uh, and so I gave him that one, since I already preached on the resurrection at, at Easter, and I thought I would skip to the very end here and go straight for a very controversial passage and end on that note. Um, uh, I didn't think it was fair to give him that one. So um, I do want us to look at this. It's probably going to be a very strange reading. For some of you, it might be helpful to follow along in your bulletin today, um, as we'll put our our traditional thanks be to God here in the middle of the reading. But let's start in verse 6, and let's follow along together. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Some of the earliest manuscripts, this is an ESV editor's note, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 16, 9 through 20. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking in the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table. And he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be, will be condemned. And, those, and these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down on the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them, <clears throat> while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. All right, let's pray this morning. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word read this morning and pray that you would be with us now by your Holy Spirit through a topic that is uh, very much debated and somewhat um, strikes fear in our hearts as we think through some of these realities. But I pray, Lord, that what we would see, rather, is our faith being strengthened and our trust in you growing and our belief in, in the Holy Spirit's uh, ability to preserve for us your very word, and that that would be the, the thing that we cling to at the end of the day. We pray that you would help us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So that was, yeah, the weirdest probably scripture reading I've heard at this church uh, ever before, and uh, for multiple different reasons. And um, as you probably noticed, as I highlighted as I read, we have an unusual note here at the end of Mark's gospel. And it's, this passage has been in discussion for over a millennia uh, in church history, and we're going to talk about it today and what this note here that the, the ESV editors have put in here and what that could possibly uh, mean for us in terms of our faith and our trust in Scripture. While it's been around for over a millennia, I'm, I'm still, uh, I always forget about it myself, so when I come to the end of Mark's Gospel, I'm like, oh yeah, I need to think about this. And I'm sure that there are some of you in the room who have never even seen this before. If you did, you didn't notice it. Uh, perhaps you're reading from a King James Bible, which doesn't make any such note. It continues on through, just like it's the regular text. But most other modern translations that you will get will have some kind of note there. Maybe it's set off in italics. Uh, maybe it's not there at all. Some of them just leave off this section entirely. And so what does that mean for us? Today's going to be an unusual week. I'm going to some more like maybe a Sunday school than an actual sermon uh, today. And so if you are into that and you like it, uh, then enjoy. But if you're not into it, don't worry. It'll change uh, by next week. So... Anyway, let's, let's dive into this. The question is, does Mark's gospel end at verse 8? And the, the questions, of course, underneath that are, how can we not know that, right? How can we not know whether Mark's gospel ends at verse 8 or if it continues through verse 20? And what does that do if, if it's somehow true that, that verses 9 through 20 are not part of the Bible, then... How, how can I be certain that the rest of Mark, the previous ones that we've talked about, where we've said this is the word of the Lord, thanks be to God, and the reason why we do that is to set it apart. We say this is God's word. We're certain. We believe in this. What does that do to our faith? Why is this in brackets? Well, I'll tell you what the, I'll tell you what the conclusion of most people is in the world, although there are some that definitely disagree, the conclusion of most scholars, this is both liberal-leaning, you know, however you want to define that, more conservative, many of the names that you would recognize, uh, very conservative in our tradition even, uh, believe that the verses from chapter, from chapter 16, verse 9 through 20, are a later but still very, very early addition to Mark's gospel. Someone came in, and wrote these words. There are still many people, maybe not many, there is a small subset of folks who do not think that is true. And whether you have a PhD or not a PhD is not in discussion right here. Many people on many different sides of the spectrum believe that it should be included for historical reasons. Many who trust in the King James Version of the Bible, for instance, alone, saying that it, only the King James Bible is a trustworthy uh, version, the manuscripts that the, the King James Bible is based on are the ones that should be trusted above all else. Uh, there's, there's certainly an argument to be made for that. Many people have made it over the years, and many people have derided that argument as well. We're not going to go down too much into the weeds on that today, even though I will address this ending of Mark's Gospel. But I, don't, I want us mostly to talk about the trustworthiness of Scripture and how we can know that it is God's word. The main issue that comes up here at the end of Mark's gospel is the ending. 
If Mark's gospel ends in verse 8, as many, many scholars, the majority, 95%, believe it does, then why does it end the way that it does? Look at verse 8. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now, that's quite a cliffhanger to end a, a gospel on. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, this is before the modern era. There, there isn't like usually cliffhangers like this in a- ancient documents. Um, th- these people go out from the grave and they're trembling and they're afraid. And so it really ends in a downbeat. It ends with fear and, and trembling. And we don't get some of those those passages that happen in other Gospels where we see Jesus appearing to the 500 people and he appears to the disciples or Thomas touches his side and uh, his hands and believes. Um, Jesus ascending into heaven and, and promising to return the Great Commission. We don't get any of those things if Mark's Gospel ends here. We get actually a cliffhanger of despair. There's fear and trembling. They don't believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. It reminds me because we just read uh, Charlotte's Web, uh, finished Charlotte's Web this week, um, classic in my house. Um, and so spoilers are ahead. So if you're reading Charlotte's Web right now, you might want to take your kids out or cover their ears up, but it's been out for 70 years. So um, here goes. So one of the most heartwarming and, and poignant novels ever written. I mean, it's just beautifully written. And it deals with the themes of death, right? Even from the very beginning, as Wilbur the pig has to wrestle with. Um, these, these themes of, like, I'm going to one day be Christmas dinner. And Charlotte the spider comforts him, his best friend, and she says that she's going to save his life. And, of course, by the end, she spins her last web. That's the way that she saves his life. And in so doing, she, she saves his life forever. She spins out her web, and she dies. And as we were reading this, I mean, our kids are just stunned, right? You have to be careful when you introduce this, right? Because it's so sad. Um, I, I'm like pausing, you know, multiple times to gain my composure. It's so beautiful and so sad. And the book really could have ended there. The themes would all be there. Uh, Charlotte giving her life for Wilbur. Wilbur living and knowing that he had done that for her. I mean, those themes are beautiful. Gospel themes, you might say. But I'm so glad that there's two extra chapters after she dies, right? Because then we're told in the story that Charlotte's egg sac has her babies and it gets to go back to the farm. And these babies are born and three of them stay with Wilbur. And that moment when one of them says, salutations, you know, uh, that's Charlotte's greeting. She's always using big words with Wilbur, salutations. And you know, that, that Charlotte lives on in these, these baby spiders. And it's a good thing. It, it, it fills you with that kind of sense of relief. Even though it would have been a good story without that, it fills you with so much relief to see that resurrection, that her life lives on in its fullest sense. And so many people have said this, this is not good enough to have the Bible end, or the, Mark's Gospel end at verse 8. The fear is kind of unbearable, kind of like Wilbur. It's, it's just unbearable to have them sitting in this fear. What about all the things that happened? What about the things that I mentioned, and especially him showing that, that people do believe in him after the resurrection, and they did see him ascend to heaven? 
What's the possibility? Let's assume for a second that this is the end of Mark's gospel. What would be an explanation for why Mark ended this here? It could be that Mark intended to leave us with a cliffhanger and to highlight the unbelief of the disciples, because that is true in all the Gospels, the unbelief in the resurrection. Unlikely, but a possibility. Another possibility is that Mark intended to write part two of this series. He certainly says at the beginning of the Gospel, this is the beginning of the good news, just like Luke does. Luke writes a two-part Gospel, the Gospel of Luke and then the Gospel of Acts. Um, which is not really considered a gospel, but it is the gospel of the church. It is, is Jesus' witness going forward in the Spirit. Um, and so it could be that Mark intended to do that and to deal with the resurrection and the appearances and the birth of the church and all the things that happen in part two. That's a possibility. Or the third possibility is that the ending of Mark was lost to history. And that it was there, and someone tried to supply an ending to it. These are all the possibilities within the realm, of course, of this not being originally included. So there is a possibility, maybe even a probability, that someone saw this ending and it wasn't enough for them, and they pieced together some of the other pieces of the other Gospels into the end of this book. Now, saying all that, I know that is an overwhelming feeling to even say those words begins to strike fear in our hearts. Like, what, what is going on here? Can I believe the Scriptures? If this is possible, then what assurance do I have that I can trust in the Scriptures? So that's really the question I want us to ask today. It's this. Can we trust that the Bible has come to us intact? Can we trust that the Bible has come to us intact? And by the way, I think that there's a good chance that these verses were added on at the, uh, early, but still after Mark's Gospel. But I think that they should be included in the Bible, like they are here, set apart, so that when we come to them, we can actually have this conversation. I like that we're able to have this conversation right now, even though it's daunting, and I have been praying all week that it wouldn't lead to further confusion and a lack of faith in us, but would rather do the opposite. It would show us how trustworthy God's Word actually is. So it's not going to be a surprise that I'm going to answer that question, yes. Can we trust the Scriptures come to us intact? Yes, we can. I want to give you four reasons today. The first reason is this. The problems are few and far between. Problems. They're not really problems in my opinion, but if you want to call them that, they're few and far between. Now this comes up because we see maybe we're passing a newsstand um, and we see Newsweek magazine, and we see some kind of Byzantine picture of Christ, you know, like it's always from that era. <laughs> and, uh, and then somebody says, you know, thousands of manuscript errors found in the Bible. And it's designed to lead to this lack of trust. Well, when you see that, you can just move on. I mean, nothing in Newsweek's been worthy of reading for the last couple of decades anyway, but like, just move on, okay? That's not, I'm going to show you in just a second why that's not the case. Uh, even though in a certain way they can get away with saying that. There are over 20,000 manuscripts of the Bible, of early manuscripts, in nine different languages. So over 5,000 of them are in Greek, uh, and the other ones are in Syriac and Latin, and there's other early manuscripts. Of course, in the transmission and the copying of these manuscripts, there have been times where 
mistakes were made, omissions were made, just like if I had everyone write out this passage today in this room, I'm guessing we wouldn't have a clean slate. But however, the problems are remarkably few and far between. That's the point. Let me show you exactly how this works. Um, Textual criticism is what it's called. And I'll give you an example. Let's say that you are a scribe. You write out uh, passages for other people because not everybody in the ancient world can write. Most people can't. So you are a scribe and you live in the city of Troas in Asia Minor. So you write down things. You hear that there is a Gospel of John preserved in the city of Antioch. So you travel because you're a scribe and you want to bring the Gospel of John. This is the way this would work. Nobody's on WikiLeaks. Nobody's on Wikipedia, right? Uploading in real time uh, these things. You have to go. There's just this parchment. There's a parchment of John in Antioch. And you go there to copy it. You are a faithful scribe. You believe in Jesus Christ. You believe in the message that the apostles have said, and you trust in him, but you want the Gospel of John in the city of Troas, so you go to Antioch and copy it down. You're very careful throughout the Gospel. You write down the words, but only once in the copy that you're looking at, let's just take a common word, um, Jesus. The The word Jesus comes up a lot in the Gospel of John, as you might imagine. Jesus is on one line here, and the next line has Jesus in the same spot. And, and you, 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 realize, you don't even realize that you start writing the second line, where it starts with Jesus, rather than the first one. Okay? And so there's actually a, a missing line from that text. You don't intend to do it. You go back to Troas. What happens? All the scholars in Troas are jealous that you got to go to Antioch and to copy the Gospel of John, and their patrons, they, they want copies of the Gospel of John, so they've been hired to copy your copy. And so they begin to copy it. And they copy everything, and they leave out that one line that you left out, and now there's 21 copies of this Gospel of John with a missing line. But one of those scholars, one of them, remembers that maybe he's read the Gospel of John before. He remembers there was another line in there. And and certainly when he looks at the Gospel of Mark, which he has a copy of next to him, it seems like Jesus would have said something else right there. So he puts in the footnote uh, into the margin, okay, I think Jesus said something like this here. And then other people copy his. And then maybe a generation passes. And and that that one scholar who wrote in the margin uh, is revered by all, by this godly man who who wrote this, this, this faithful you know, representation of John's gospel. And then somebody said, well, if he thinks that's in there, then he was certainly a godly and trustworthy man. Let's just move that into the text. That's probably what it said. So you see how this happens, right? This happens over and over again. And so then, of course, it's very easy to see, oh, here's 200 mistakes. But are there 200 mistakes? No. It's very easy. It's very easy if you know the story of what I just said to see how it happened, and that there was not an intent to take this away. So, now you're a modern scholar, you live in the 21st century, and you do have databases, and you do have abilities to compare things, and so you create an apparatus, a way of understanding all, how all these stories happened, and piecing them together. That's called the work of textual criticism. 
And so you create an apparatus whereby you understand uh, how to make some of these decisions. And you may do things like this. You might say, um, well, there's some rules here. Uh, shouldn't we say that earlier is better? Well, certainly, if you'd gotten that Gospel of John tract that was with a verse left out before it had been left out, then it would be better, right, to have that copy. You would prioritize that copy because it's earlier. And let's go even further. Let's just get to the Greek manuscripts, the original, as close as we can. Earlier would be better. That's why this note in here says that some of the earliest manuscripts do not contain this. They've looked back at some of the early manuscripts and seen that this was not there. The earliest ones, in fact, that we have. You might also say some other rules. Greek would be better than Latin, of course, because the New Testament was written in Greek. Uh, so Latin would have been a, a later copying, obviously. The reading that best explains the other would be the one that's preferred. You might have a lot of apparatus around this. You might spill a lot of red ink trying to get to the bottom of these stories. And you might be noting all the different possibilities and create this huge thing. But at the end of the day, it's a small thing. Does that make sense? It's a small thing. 95% of the work of textual criticism is like over 2% of the Bible. Does that make sense? It's not actually as much as people think it is. And of course, the intent was never to corrupt the Scriptures. That would be to read a modern assumption into what they were doing. They were trying their best to preserve this. It actually strengthens my faith to know that there are, like, what if I were to say to you today, the evidence is in, and no, nobody's ever miscopied the Bible. Not once. Like, you wouldn't believe me, right? Because we know the human capacity for error. And you may have this kind of bias towards, like, well, now we live in modern times, and so uh, we, we would do a lot better job today. Well, that's not necessarily true either. I'll give you an example. Um, when I was in seminary, I was writing a paper uh, on some, some section of the scriptures, it was for a biblical studies class, and um, I got to introduce a word to you, a, a technical word that, that we use in theology. It's called pericope. So pericope just means a section of scripture, like a passage, like a reading of scripture. These eight verses are the pericope that we're talking about today, whatever. Um, why do we call it a pericope? There's no reason. Theologians have to make money, you know, they have to come up with. Uh, a vocabulary, we could just call it a passage, but in seminary you call it a pericope, okay? So that's the backdrop. So I'm writing a paper, and I'm typing in the word pericope over and over and over again. Well, like many of you this morning, my word processor does not recognize the word pericope, okay? So it autocorrects. It adds an S in the middle of it, changing it to periscope. So the word periscope is in my paper, and I don't notice it. I get through, I edit this paper, I, and I've used this word over and over and over again, right? And it's there in the middle, it's periscope, it's right in front of me. But I don't see it, and I turn in the paper, and I get the paper back, and it's covered in red ink, okay? Now, I was, you know, I was a good student in seminary. I'm not used to seeing all that red ink, so it alarmed me. And so I looked at what it said, and like 10 times on the first page, S's were circled all the way through and slashed out. And then they just gave up and wrote at the bottom, like, throughout, you know. <laughs> like, and, um, but did I get a bad grade? No, I didn't. Why not? Because it was a good paper, uh, you know. And because, like, how ridiculous would it be for the professor to say something like, 
This student thinks that nautical equipment is used in the scriptures. You know, he thinks that this passage is about periscopes. Of course not. He knew what I was trying to do. He saw the error. So the red ink that he spilled on my page was not about how untrustworthy I was as a student. It was about, like, watch your word processor. Be more careful. All the red ink of textual criticism, trust me, I have read into it, is spilled over very, very minor things. Okay, throughout. Very minor. Very easy if you know the right tools to use, how to piece together some of those textual problems. The problems are few and far between. Now, I know you're thinking this. Well, we just read nine verses that were added on to the end of Mark's Gospel. So, how can you say that it's minor and few and far between when that has happened, potentially has happened here? Let me tell you, this passage is the most egregious example in all of the Scripture of potential textual criticism. It's, only, it's in a class by itself. It is really the only place with the exception of one other passage. There are two passages that have been challenged. This in John chapter 7 and leading into verse chapter 8 about the woman caught in adultery. Those are literally the only two passages that are full passages that are objected to on these grounds. That's it. Those two. And so, let's actually look at this passage because the first point is this, the problems are few and far between, but here's the second reason why you can say yes to the question, and we trust that the Bible has come to us intact. Because, number two, the substance is not changed. All right, now that you have this this primer on textual criticism, let's look at the worst passage, quote-unquote. It's not that scary, Okay? It's not that crazy. Let's look at it. Verses 9 through 11 talk about Mary Magdalene telling the disciples that Jesus has been raised from the dead. Well, that's fine. She does the same thing in Luke chapter 24, a completely undisputed passage. In verses 12 through 13, we're told that Jesus appears to two that are walking into the country. That's those who are on the road to Emmaus, also told to us in Luke chapter 24. Verses 14 through 16 is a version of the Great Commission where Jesus tells his disciples to go and, and, and speak this, proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Of course, that's Matthew 28. And the other gospels record the, the Great Commission. We're, at, we're getting an added bonus here of he, hearing that he chided the disciples for not believing. Um, but that's really the only difference. Verse 17 and 18 are the ones that are talked about the most. Okay? Because it has these words here. Let's read it again. These signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. Now we're told these are the signs that accompany the outpouring of the gospel. Certainly when I read this, it strikes me as different than the rest of the gospel of Mark. Is there something a little more sensational about it uh, than what Mark has a very subdued tone? We've talked about this throughout. Whenever there's kind of a, a miracle, Jesus is kind of like, you know, don't tell anyone about it. So this, this does strike us as something different. But in each of these cases, 
These are things that we have seen in the early church. Of course, if you read the Gospel of Acts, you see that signs and wonders did accompany the outpouring of the Spirit into the, into the world. And I believe, this is a discussion for another day, that signs and wonders often do accompany, even still, the outpouring of the Spirit into parts of the world where Christ has not been proclaimed as King, though they are not necessarily normative or a normal part of the worship service that we have here. This speaking in tongues, the laying on of hands and healing are things that we see in the book of Acts. And yes, even snake bites, handling of snakes. Paul was bit by a viper and survived in Acts chapter 28 because of his godliness, because he was bringing forth the gospel. And so the point is, while it has this sensational character to it, none of these things are unexplainable outside of Scripture. But please don't handle snakes. (laughs) Um, Be careful if you do. That's not the point. The point is this. This is the most blatant, if it is in fact the case. If you come to the conclusion that Mark did not write these words and they were added by someone else, this would be the most blatant and the most contested passage, and it's still not, it's still so tame. Do you see what I'm saying? There's nothing in here about how Jesus isn't God, <laughs> that the resurrection didn't happen. There's no gotchas. There's just a possibly different voice for many of the same things that we already believe happened. And so, if you come to the conclusion that maybe it should just be included, then you'd be among many people, faithful people, who would agree with you. If you come to the conclusion that it shouldn't be, there's nothing here to worry about. That's the point I'm making. Number three, the reason why you can trust that the Bible has come to us intact. The process is trustworthy. When you say Can we trust the Bible? Can we trust that this manuscript has come to us intact? You really are asking the question of compared to what, right? Uh, Of course, we don't have the same standards of copy today that they would have had back then. So is the Bible trustworthy compared to what? And I'll tell you that the Bible, if you're looking for an ancient document to trust, the Bible is the most trustworthy and attested and preserved document in all of antiquity, and it's not even close. It's not even close. There are 5,795 Greek manuscripts. Those are Greek. Those are as close to the original as we have. So here's the way that you compare different ancient documents. You compare them by the number of manuscripts that you have, how well attested they are, that's what that means, how many manuscripts are there, and then secondly, what is the gap between the events that happened and the first manuscript that we've discovered. Now, the first manuscript we've discovered may not be the first manuscript ever, and we might discover more, but what is the first and where is the gap, and how many are there? There are 5,795 Greek manuscripts There is between a 20 and 60 year, if you're a conservative scholar like myself, between a 20 and 30 year gap between the earliest manuscript that we have and the Greek, the the things that happened. What's the closest next thing? It's Homer's Iliad. Homer's Iliad has 1,757 manuscripts, 4,000 less than the New Testament. And there is a 400 year gap between the events that supposedly happened in Homer's Iliad and the first manuscript discovering the story. And then it just gets worse from there. Julius Caesar is the next most attested. The Gaelic Wars, 
251 manuscripts. 900-year gap between the first manuscript discovered and the events that supposedly happened in the Gaelic Wars. And the last one, Plato, his famous Tetralogies, 210 copies, 1,300 years. Plato says this, somebody writes in paper, right? Plato's philosophy was this. People around Plato taught this. There are 251 manuscripts of Plato's writings, and there is 1,300 years between eventually, or from what Plato said and the first manuscript attesting to what he said. It's not even close. This is the most preserved document in all of antiquity. If you are going to trust a document has come to us preserved, there is no reason to trust anything more than the Scriptures. Beyond that, we have the attestation of the early church fathers. That's the, the, the um, theological leaders in the first through fourth centuries, say. And someone has gone through and tallied up all the writings of the, the church fathers. And in all of these writings, they've discovered there are 86,000 quotes of Scripture. 86,000 times that the church fathers quoted something. Now, some of those are repeats, right? John 3.16 is probably repeated more than once. But at least once, 86,000 times things were quoted. How, many, how much of the New Testament is covered by those 86,000 quotes? Only 20 verses are left out. So by early as the 1st through 3rd or 4th century, these were referred to as the Scriptures. This is what they would refer to, this body of work, within an accuracy of 20 verses. It doesn't mean that they didn't, didn't think those 20 verses were there. It's just that they didn't write them in. The point that I'm making is this. If you're looking for a trustworthy process, you're going to find it here with the Scriptures. The Scriptures, more than anything else have been carefully preserved and attested to ever since they were written. And anything beyond that is kind of a hype, is, a, is, a, um, is putting on the Scriptures a modern kind of understanding of things beyond what they would have done. The fourth and final point that we need to make this morning is this. You can, you can hear everything that I'm saying. The process is trustworthy. The substance has not changed. Nothing, nothing is at stake <laughs> No great doctrine is at stake in any kind of change. The problems are few and far between, but this fourth point is really, in a sense, the most important, which is this. The Holy Spirit is in control. The Scriptures talk about and guarantee the inspiration of themselves in a way that they don't talk about the preservation of the Scriptures. And so there is an intense guarantee of the inspiration of Scriptures. Look at 2 Peter Chapter 1 says this, knowing this, first of all, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is the inspiration of Scripture. This is just one verse of Scripture that talks about this, that that these men who wrote the Scriptures were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You have to believe that in order to trust the Scriptures at the end of the day. Consider this. Uh, what we've been talking about here, the problem, the, the lost in transmission, maybe we don't have the true words of Jesus, maybe we don't have the true words of God, that is such a powerful argument and such a powerful excuse, if you think about it. 
Anybody that's a parent in here knows this excuse. <laughs> I didn't hear you. I didn't hear you. Kids, that's a powerful excuse. <laughs> because there's no way, as a parent, that you can enter into their brains and say, ah, but I, I see now, you did hear me. Even if you suspect, even if you are 99% sure that they did hear you, you cannot know. You can always use that excuse. Lost in transmission. I didn't hear. I don't trust this. How do we know? You can always use that. Here's another example. Neil Armstrong landing on the moon. Famously uttering the words, one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. You know there's a controversy about this statement? Because... Neil Armstrong swore that what he said that day was one small step for a man, one giant leap for mankind. He added the word a, so he says. He went to his grave saying, this is what I said. But you cannot hear it on the recording. Now, why would he be making that argument? Because the phrase is much better when you say a, right? Otherwise, it's like man and mankind are like the same thing. One small step for mankind, one giant leap for mankind. But it's much better to say a man. That just, makes, that just takes it from a good phrase to like an amazing thing to say. And he probably planned it, of course, right? And so he, he says that he said it. People ask NASA, did he say it? They say, it's probably there, but the noise, the, the A was lost to space. <laughs> space noise. I mean, that's powerful. Are you going to disagree with NASA? That space noise couldn't happen in that recording? Here's what I'm, the point I'm making is this. Lost in transmission is a powerful and can be a lazy way to deny responsibility. Saying, I can't trust the scriptures. I don't know if there is enough evidence. I believe this other person who is quoted in Newsweek who says that we can't trust the Bible. Why do you trust them? Why do you trust them? What about them? They have a PhD. So does everyone that I've quoted today. Look, at the end of the day, you can't, you weren't there. And nobody that writes for those types of publications and nobody that's here in this room was there. It's a powerful way to say, I just don't know and therefore I'm not going to commit. But what do we believe? None of us were there at creation. None of us were there for any of the events of the scriptures. We believe in something called fides quorens intellectum, faith seeking understanding. The faith position comes first. And that is not true of just Christians. That is true of everyone. Everyone must decide what their position of faith is first and then seek to understand. Not just be blind, not turn it off. Obviously, I'm reading scholars and saying, well, maybe this wasn't part of Scripture. But there's a faith there that seeks understanding out of the faith position. And everyone, if they're intellectually honest, must come to that conclusion that the reason why they find someone more trustworthy than someone else is because they want on some level to believe that. And because something has worked in their life to make that more true than the alternatives. Nicholas Perrin has a great book uh, called Lost in Transmission. If you're curious about uh, these things, you want to study them more, how the words of Jesus were preserved. And he says this, history cannot prove anything. What history can do is offer a plausible reconstruction. That's just absolute gospel truth. 
Just because you read something from someone's perspective doesn't mean that it makes it automatically true. How do they know? How does anyone know? The point is not to obliterate this idea of faith. It's for all of us to acknowledge that all of us are starting with a faith position. That we believe in something. Do you believe that the Scriptures are trustworthy? It can't be separated from other ideas of belief. Do you believe in God? Do you believe that He created this universe? Do you believe that He works in the world? How can you prove those things? How can you know those things? Do you believe that you have purpose here? That you have, there's, there's a reason why that you're here. Do you believe that something happens after you die? These kind of basic philosophical questions have to be approached with fides, quorens, intellectum. Faith seeking and understanding. But it has to start somewhere. And I want to say to you, why not trust this? Why not trust these writers? After all, they died for the message that they put here for us. They died for it. And everyone, liberal, conservative, whatever, disbelieving the Scriptures entirely, believes that these were historical people who died in historical ways that are attested for us elsewhere. They died for this message. Those who were carried along by the Holy Spirit, who wrote down that they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, were so gripped by the message of Christ and gripped by the Holy Spirit's work in their life that they died for this message. Do people die? One of my seminary professors used to say this. Do people die for lies? Yes. All the time. Do people die for lies that they invented? They do not. They at least were gripped. They who were closest to the events. Why not trust them? Why not look to them? And why not trust God? Why, you can notice this in yourself. Are you gripped the way that they were gripped by the message of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit? Are you yourself gripped by those things? As you read these words, is there something about this historical proof that you're looking for, but you're actually just looking for a plausible reconstruction? Uh, you're looking for a way to understand the world that makes sense of your reality. And when I look at this, this message, as it has come to us preserved, there is something here that makes sense of my life, that draws me in, that shows me that Christ is the way. If you don't have that starting position, then it won't matter which people we quote. It matters first and foremost, do you have faith? Do you have faith in what God has done? Do you have faith in the Holy Spirit and what He has preserved here for us? If you have that faith, then out of that you can seek understanding about the way that the Scriptures have come to us. Let's pray.